Thank you, uh, Len and Stu, for reading those very long passages. And their relevance, I hope, will come apparent as we move into this passage. What I'm going to be doing uh, is really concentrating on the first part of the passage, which is the passage, uh, part of the passage that deals with uh, us and governments, move more quickly then into the issue of slavery and then try to work out some modern day applications in regards to that. So that's how the structure is going to go. But I apologise in advance because I'll be not touching on one of the greatest of all passages which is found in this passage uh, on the death of Jesus and its meaning and that's the last two verses. I'm sorry, I just can't do everything. (laughs) So something's got to be left out and I know I'm a heretic in leaving that out. Uh, But but you'll see what I do emphasise and uh, hopefully that will be satisfactory. Okay, uh, our theme is submission. Not a popular notion these days by any means. But it's one which Peter explores and he explores it from three viewpoints. That is submission to governments in the first century, the relationship between masters and slaves in the first century, and also family relationships, particularly husbands and wives. Now, may I say at the very beginning of this sermon uh, that this is a theme that has to be handled very carefully. And I'm going to start on the extreme edge of things. And I'll be talking about the submission of both German and German Protestant and German Catholic churches to Hitler during the Third Reich. And when I thought about one Peter, particularly looking at um, verses 13 and following through to 17, I did become a little bit disturbed because I realised that if not handled carefully, this could actually endorse that kind of submission. So I did look in the text as I worked through it for any clues, and I found one that's very important later on, that saves us from this mistake. Now, first slide, please. The problem is, you see, is that during the Third Reich, the German church, whether it was Protestant or Catholic, became severely compromised by its submission to the authorities. Exactly what Peter is speaking about so positively. Next slide, please. (coughs) There you see Hitler greeting members of the clergy at a rally. And notice the absolute pleasure in terms of meeting him is written large over the faces of the clergy here. There is no reserve at all. Just unbridled enthusiasm for Hitler. Next slide, please. Here we see the Roman Catholic bishop, Friedrich Koch, saluting Hitler in Dresden on the 10th of December 1933. Absolute submission to the governing authorities. Next slide, please. Finally, you see there the new logo of the Christian faith. You see in the centre of the cross, 
not the crucified Christ, if you follow the Catholic tradition, or not the empty cross, if you follow the Protestant tradition, the empty cross, of course, pointing to Christ's resurrection. What you see instead is the Nazi swastika replacing the risen or the crucified Christ. So where does submission to the government actually end? The decision of the German churches to support Hitler was not unexpected, unfortunately. The flirtation of the church was the end product of a long period of anti-Semitism that had risen in Germany from about the 1870s onwards. And the churches were part of that. They were part of it in their professors that taught in the theological seminaries and one of the greatest of all theological dictionaries that you can still buy today, a magnificent uh, piece of scholarship, in some of its articles reflects anti-Semitic viewpoints because the actual German professors that wrote those articles held to those viewpoints when they were writing at the time. Next slide, please. Contrast, however, the church energised. For some, notice the word, for some among the German confessing church in Germany, submission stopped with the rise of the power of Hitler. One of the more famous opponents of Nazism was the German theologian and martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Next slide, please. Who was the author of the famous study on the Sermon of the Mount, amongst many things. But it was titled, The Cost of Discipleship. By the way, it was the second Christian book I ever read and I remember going to the assembly bookshop and there it was, I was in year 12, on the, on the bookshelf. And I thought, great, I'll buy this. And then I suddenly realised if I bought it, I'd only have five cents for a bus fare back home. What do you do? Buy the book or get the, get the bus back home? I bought the book and walked from Margaret Street in Sydney back home. It was a life-changing book. And it, it was a book which, of course, Bonhoeffer lived out because he understood the cost of discipleship. It was very costly for him. It cost him his life. In 1939, as a theological professor, he was able to go to America and have the opportunity to teach over at uh, the Union Theological Seminary in New York but he only stayed there a few months because he was aware that he had left Germany and he'd left Germany in the lurch. So he went back into Germany in the same year and he worked as a double agent, being an ecumenical, I guess, intermediary between the, the Nazi government and the church, while at the same time being part of the resistance that opposed Hitler. And in fact when he was able to spirit off 15 Jews to Switzerland. He was then arrested. And, uh, of course, he was imprisoned by the Gestapo in Berlin. He was then moved to the Flossenberg concentration camp. Next slide, please. Where he was hung on April 9, 1945. 
But as I said, his opposition to Hitler was unusual. Not many did this at all, sadly. The SS doctor who witnessed Bonhoeffer's death later recalled a man devout, brave and composed. His death ensued after a few seconds. And notice what he said. I've hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. Not to the German Reich, but to the will of God. Bonhoeffer, before he died, had sent one final message to George Bell in England. This is the end for me, but for me, the beginning of life. Here we see a different type of submission, don't we? A submission to God that overrides submission to the worldly authorities. So let's see how this works out in our passage. And you have, of course, there an outline for you, and you can uh, see where I'm going. And the first thing I'm just going to look at is the general principle of submission. And here I'm looking at 1 Peter 2.13a. Now I just want to say, first of all, is that submission is the great theme of our passage. In 2.13 he talks about our submission to the earthly authorities. And then, of course, it expands on that in verses 13 through to 17. Then in 2.18 it speaks about the submission of Christian slaves to their masters. And that's expanded on in 18 to 25. Then in (coughs) 3.1, the passage which Stu will preach on next week, it talks about the submission of wives to husbands. A very difficult and controversial uh, topic these days. But there it is. It's the theme of submission. So what is submission? What is it as a principle? And why is it so important? I guess what I want to say is that we as human beings have a fundamental problem. And the fundamental problem is this. It's the problem of self-assertion. Genesis chapter 3. You shall not eat from the fruit of the tree in the middle of of the garden. Well, actually I can. And yes, I agree with the serpent that God has only said that to restrict our pleasure. So I'm going to assert my right and eat that fruit. Thank you very much. Because it looks delightful and beautiful. So I'll assert my independence. Submission is the absolute opposite to that. We submit to God and we submit to each other. And can I say, personally speaking, I do not like submitting to others. I regard that as an infringement on my freedom. I do not like serving others. I prefer that they would serve me. I do not like giving other people respect and honour. I'd much prefer that they honour and respect me. In fact, I don't want to serve people. I much more want to manipulate them for my own purposes so that they'll be convenient and do what I want them to do. If you have any doubts about that, ask Elizabeth. 
instead, we want respect and honour, we want autonomy, and we don't want to share it with anyone else unless they're convenient to us. So we have a problem. It's the problem of self-assertion over against submission. But notice, our writer Peter says that we are to submit. Notice what he says. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. For the Lord's sake. Isn't that interesting? What does that mean? Who is the Lord, first of all? Well, I think it's clearly the risen Christ. It's not God the Father. It's obviously Jesus, the risen Lord, because that's who he goes on to give us the, as the example at the end of the passage. It is the risen Lord, triumphant over sin and death, and particularly triumphant over the effects of our own self-assertion that is spoken about here. We submit to him and to his Father. Why? Because Jesus submitted to God's plan on the cross of shame for us. He died in our place instead of us. He took our sin on that cross submitting to a death that he did not have to undergo as the perfectly sinless one. He did not have to die. He had none of the effects of sin in him. He could have lived eternally, if I put it that way. And yet he did die as the perfect, sinless Son of God, submitting to God's plan out of love for his Father, and out of love for us. So we therefore submit because we model ourselves on Christ and we submit in gratitude to God for the submission of Christ. So rather than it being something despicable (coughs) and despised in our culture, for the Christian it is the very story that is at the heart of the gospel. And if we show self-assertion rather than submission and we do not understand the character of our Lord and we do not understand what he has done for us and we are showing extreme ingratitude. So let's think how this works out. And I've given you a few verses there in your outline and it's intriguing to see (coughs) how Peter uh, raises the issue, how it also (coughs) is very clear in other writers of the New Testament. So, for example, we go to Romans 12, verse 10b. So, Romans 12, verse 10b, and there we read, it says, first of all, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honour one another above yourselves. I don't want to do that. I'd much rather you honour me. But I'm going to submit and honour you ahead of myself. 
That's what submission is all about. Ephesians 5, 21. Unfortunately, this text is ruined for us because of English full stops. What do I mean? Well, Greek sentences are a lot longer than they are in the English. And we miss out on certain little clues. So, in this marvellous sentence, which actually starts in verse 9, uh, in verse, um, the second half of verse 18, you have the command, be filled with the Spirit, comma, speaking to one another, da di da di da singing and making music, da-di-da-di-da, always giving thanks to God, da-di-da-di-da, and submitting to one another out of the reverence for Christ. Can you see the connection? Being filled with the Spirit is what energises our worship in terms of speaking to one another with psalms and hymns, singing our spiritual songs and making music to the Lord, giving thanks to him and submitting to one another. In other words, the work of the Spirit in the body of Christ brings about its beauty by helping us to submit to one another because that is what Christ did for us in dying on the cross and that is what he does regarding God's plan for us. Submission, rather than being a pathetic, groveling thing that only the weak do, is a sign of spiritual maturity. It's a sign of being filled with the Spirit and the continuous filling of the Spirit. Last of all, in Philippians 2, 3-4, another little sign of what submission means. There we read the following. Do nothing out of selfish ambition, i.e. self-assertion, our vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. I'm sorry, I'm better than you guys. I'm better dressed, I'm smarter, I'm more handsome. But in humility, I'll put aside all those great virtues I have and realise that I'm a drongo and I've got nothing to offer which is absolutely true, brothers and sisters. In humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So there's our mini-portrait of what submission is all about. It's an expression of brotherly love where we consider others better than ourselves. It's an expression of being filled with the Holy Spirit where we willingly serve each other. And it's an expression of humility before God and before each other. How then does this great theme work out in our passage? Now Peter, of course, moves to the particulars and he gives us two particulars. And the first one of those is the Christian citizen and he deals with that in Romans 2, 13b through to 17. And you'll notice that I've uh, given you a few little headings and it's under the general question, what does the passage say? And the first point I want to make is that after having sort of spelt out a little bit in verses 9 to 12, the previous uh, few verses, the context that we are aliens and strangers in the world, 
and that is our heavenly citizenship because we're going to be with Christ. We're not at home here, but we will be at home when we're citizens of God's kingdom, the heavenly kingdom. He then goes on to talk about the earthly kingdom. And he says quite clearly in verse 11 that we live good lives among the pagans so that they may see our good deeds and glorify God. Now he moves into the particular area of politics and you'll notice that he nominates the earthly rulers. <coughs> Excuse me. You'll notice that in verse 13b, he mentions the king, i.e. the Caesars at Rome in, west, in the west, so the Julio-Claudians or the Flavians, depending upon when this actually was written, it, it would be the, uh, the Julio-Claudians. And of course the governors in the provinces, the proconsuls. So that little funny list of, of, of sort of areas, all from Asia Minor in verse 1 of 1 Peter, they're all ruled by, of course, Roman governors with their armies there. So you can't escape it. The Caesars might be over there in the western Rome, but his representatives are here locally with garrisons and proconsuls and a whole other series of, um, of people as well, officials, to run the empire. And he then goes on in verse 14 to speak about the twofold purpose of the state that God has given to the earthly rulers. Now, can I say to you that Christians are not anarchists? And they're not anarchists because God has established a particular structure of society where the ruling authorities are given two roles. One is a punishing role where they establish laws and judicial proceedings and if you disobey them, you're in trouble. If you obey them, then there's social cohesion. And secondly, they have a commending role. This is not quite as obvious in our society, but in the first century world, the Caesars and their local governors and their lesser officials would reciprocate favours given by communities or individuals with inscriptions that actually honoured the individual. And sometimes they even put a little letter of the actual emperor himself saying, thanks for what you've done. Uh, not quite as crudely as that, but uh, there are examples of that. So there was this commending role of governments in the first century AD. So what we see is that the social order has been set up by God to prevent the outbreak of chaos. We have to realise that good government is a gift from God and we ought to be praying for its continuance, 1 Timothy 2. Now you might have uh, wondered why that funny passage from Isaiah 45 was read out about Cyrus being God's servant and all that kind of stuff. Well, what's the context there? Israel, of course, is in Babylon. She's in exile. And God is saying, by the way, Cyrus, who believes that the universe is controlled by the Persian god Ahar Mazda, and who believes that Ahar Mazda has told him to conquer the universe, 
Well, guess what God is saying? I've got news for you and for him. He's my servant. I'm the boss. And I have appointed him to move Israel from exile back to its original homeland again. That's the power of God. He's in control of history, not Cyrus. So social order is divinely set up by God for good purposes and for punishing purposes to make sure that social cohesion there's. Now this is very, very Old Testament stuff. I'm going to come back to this in a moment. Notice that in verse 15b, it's made quite clear that the role of Christians in society is to do good. Now, without going into it, that's the technical language for charity or gifts of benefaction. We are to look after people physically and to care for their needs. That's what we are to do in society, as well as evangelism and all the other stuff. We are to act as benefactors. And I said this is peculiarly Old Testament stuff. Once again, Jeremiah 29.7. What's the situation there? Israel is in Babylon, in the pagan capital of the world. And what does God say? Start your families, build your houses, have your children, and seek the welfare of the city. Babylon? Yes, seek the welfare of the city. So Peter is reflecting that Old Testament tradition. And in terms of the good works bit, don't forget what Jesus himself says in Luke 35. How can you seek the welfare of the Romans, our enemies? How can you do that in this superpower that is so pagan and ungodly? Well, Jesus, of course, says in Luke 6, 35... But love your enemies. Do good to them. And lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Charity, kindness to the enemy and to the friend. That's what we are to do. So, remarkable stuff, really. And we then have to ask of our passage, what's the rationale for living like this? Why why do we live this way? And the answer is to silence the foolish talk of men. And what's the foolish talk of men? We know what it is. Make no mistake about it. The ancient authors were very clear. The Christians are atheists, Charge number one. Secondly, they're superstitious. Charge number two. Charge number three, they are haters of mankind. They are atheists because they do not worship our gods. They are superstitious because they do not worship, they do not follow Roman customs. (coughs) 
and they are haters of mankind because they're separatists. They just don't go down, go down the route of immorality like the rest of pagan society. <clears throat> and Peter is saying, good works disprove this. When we're involved in caring for those around us, friend and enemy, when we live this counter-cultural life of care, we can see the praise go to God who should be worshipped and we can see lives change. Our passage then goes on to say that Christians are not to use their freedom unwisely. You see, we're not to use terrorism to achieve our alternative society. We're not anarchists. We are rather peacemakers who offer mercy to the needy and to their enemies. We seek reconciliation. We heal instead of tearing apart. Only in very extreme circumstances as was the case with Bonhoeffer, do we act against the government and risk, of course, martyrdom for Christ by refusing to obey the earthly authorities. So how do we work this out in our own culture? You'll notice what Peter says in verse 17. I have to find my passage again. I'm sorry, I've been doing a little royal tour of the Bible here. Notice in verse 17, command number one, show proper respect to everyone. Okay. Love the brotherhood of believers. Galatians 6 says we have to show love to all people, but especially to God's church. Fear the king and, sorry, fear God and fear the king. No, it doesn't say that, does it? Hang on. Fear God and fear the king. No, it doesn't say that. That's what would have gone through the minds of the original readers. Because they would know immediately that in Proverbs 24, verse 21, it says, Fear the Lord and fear the king. But Peter doesn't say that. Why? Because there's only one person to be feared. And that's the God who's made the universe. You do not fear the earthly rulers because they are passing away. They are only God's servants. And he raises them up and he pulls them down. You see, Peter is giving a hint here that there may come a time we will have to make a choice between fearing God rather than honouring the ruler. There's the little hint that things may not work out for us. Now, can I just move very quickly to make one or two basic points? We see here, um, elsewhere in the scriptures, that uh, Romans 13 teaches something very similar. But once again, Paul's very clear. The emperor is not who he claims to be. The son of God? No, he's only God's servant. The fulfilment of all Roman history? No, he's only God's servant. And we find from the book of Acts that the apostles say on two occasions, Acts 14 verse 19 and Acts 5.20, that it's better to obey God than the human rulers. And in Romans 13 we find that the Roman government is described as the beast because it attacks the believers. And in Revelation, I should say, 
<coughs> in Revelation 18. It's described, of course, as the prostitute of Babylon. It absolutely sucks the wealth out of the world. Now, what's the difference between Peter's context and ours? We live in a democracy. We have rights. We vote governments in and out. We can pressure governments through lobby groups. We can vote in independence who will preserve uh, particular causes that they uphold. The New Testament world is ruled by, at Paul's time and Peter's time, one family, the Julio-Claudians. So in our context, we should be using the freedoms we have for good. We should speak up. We should pray for our rulers. We should be honouring them. The church should be working with a social agenda. That's why we have Anglicare. It's so important. That's why we have the Anglican Deaconess Ministries. It's so important. We should be joining political parties. We should bring Christian perspectives where we can. We should be encouraging our Christian politicians. All this is very important. I'm not a uh, Liberal supporter, but my local member is Craig Loundy. And uh, Elizabeth and I have been very impressed by him at various times. And a while back we just wrote to him just saying how proud we were of him for speaking up first on a particular issue when everyone else was silent. Good on you, Craig. Got no response, but I hope he was actually encouraged by that to continue to speak up in good and godly ways. So what's the solution? We should get involved, we should pray, should give honour, should act justly and mercifully, do good, preserve our freedoms. Now I'm going to move uh, fairly quickly uh, in the last part of this sermon and looking at the particular of Christian slaves. Can I just say, in speaking about slavery in the um, New Testament world, let's forget American slavery straight away. It's not like that. Ancient slavery was not like colonial America necessarily. It really depended upon who your master was. You could have terrible masters, and we see that our passage actually recognises that and addresses that issue. If your master was Caesar, you might have a terrible uh, placement, for example, in some working in some of his mines somewhere. But then again, <coughs> like some of the Christian believers we find out about in Philippians 4, you could be in the actual household of Caesar at Rome. And you could be more, doing more than just dusting the various pieces of crockery. You could be a civil servant. High status job. An imperial bureaucrat. If you had a wealthy master, you could might have been a doctor or a nurse or a secretary or a teacher and so on as a slave. You could have a good life under a compassionate master. Wealthy Christians would have owned slaves. And there were genuine opportunities to, for freedom when you became 30. But by the way, where do you go? Well, you have to stay with your master. There's nowhere else to go. But at least you're free. You become a freedman. So the experience of slavery is varied, depending upon your master. That's the difference between the Hollywood version of slavery versus the New Testament perspective of slavery. So how do we act? Peter says that we act if you're a Christian slave and you have a bad slave, 
who is cruel and nasty. And that's what he's talking about. Not the good masters. If you have a, b- a bad master, you act with respect or translated in a different way, with deference or literally in all fear towards the master. What's he saying? When you've got a terrible master, it is astute, it is wise to be obedient. So the issue is how to respond to cruel masters. You have to remember that slaves are regarded as, process- as possessions. They're like having a Holden car. They're totally disposable. They have no career prospects. They are entirely dependent upon their masters. So what do you do when you've got a terrible one? Peter's answer is this. Do right, not wrong. Endure pain and suffering if you're doing right and still being punished. And be aware of God in this whole process. And then he gives us an example to copy. Who is the example of Jesus. And I can't go through the passage. But what he says is that Jesus in his ministry was the example of non-retaliation. And he was also one who entrusted his cause to God. He knew that by going by way of the cross that his father would vindicate his ministry, raise him from the dead, establish him as Lord of all, and yet was aware that the way to do that was to be cut off from God, damned on the cross for us, separated from the Father, something he had never experienced in the eternity of his existence going way back. So, non-retaliation, entrustment of his cause to God. What did Bonhoeffer say? This is the end, but for me, the beginning of life. And when you then pose the question, if you really can't change society and slavery in the first century, which you couldn't, What do you do? For the Christian, the answer was obvious. You create in the body of Christ a counter-cultural society that acts in radically different ways. So, for example, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 22, says the following. Stunning verse. For he who was called a slave, when he is called by the Lord, is the Lord's freedman. Similarly, he who was a free man, when he was called, is Christ's slave. So the slave in the body of Christ is now a freedman. The master in the body of Christ is now Christ's life. A total reversal of roles. Astonishing. Galatians 3.28 We have unity in Christ whether we are male or female, Jew or Gentile, 
slave or freedman. There's no division anymore between us. There's unity. And class differences are of no importance. And then in the marvellous book of Philemon, you have, of course, Onesimus, the runaway slave, meets Paul, is converted, and Paul writes this little letter where he puts a lot of pressure on the slave Martin. He says, uh, <coughs> by the way, Philemon, uh, I'm just uh, come across your slave Onesimus. Oh, and uh, by the way, he's now your brother in Christ. He's family. Oh, and by the way, he is now useful to me. He's helping me in my mission in Rome. Oh, yes, and by the way, he is my very heart. Oh, yes, and by the way, I'm sending him to you now and you will treat him as a guest in your house, no longer as a slave. The body of Christ embraced a totally different social order. So while slavery remained totally the paradigm in the ancient world, when a slave came into the body of Christ, he was family. How does a passage like this apply to us today? First of all, it's just difficult, to be honest, at one level, because slaves in the ancient world belonged to families. And there's a tradition that applies this passage to um, employer employee relations. I'm not saying this is wrong, I'm just saying it's difficult transfer, not quite sure if that's right. I'm not denying the spiritual principles, I'm just saying it's difficult. And of course we don't have slavery in Australia. Oh yes we do. Oh yes we do. Increasingly we are facing a modern society in which there are global supply chains human trafficking, servitude, forced labour, including prostitution and forced marriage. And apparently our government, midway in this year, is going to enact a modern slavery act. I haven't done that as late. I wonder what got in the way of it. I have no idea. But what I want to say to you is, by way of application... I think that this passage tells us that in whatever power and authority relationships we are placed under in society, in our civic life, where we rendered powerless and we tempted to retaliate violently and unjustly, what we have to do is to follow the example of Christ in not asserting the right to retaliation. But we have to seek out what lawful avenues there might be and we have to do that patiently and lovingly. We have to address the situation when required and we have to love the people and treat them with honour, those who are abusing us in the process. Last, let's model in the body of Christ what the new alternative society is like, a society where there's unity among ourselves because there's neither Jew or Gentile, male or female, Slave or freedman. Amen.